together and safe and everything else. It's now October the 31st, uh, 2020, and uh, it's just a beautiful morning here in Arizona. I hope it's beautiful where you are too. We are studying chapter four, We Agnostics. And in the study of chapter four, We Agnostics, what we find is the chapter is dedicated completely to step number two, came to believe that a power greater than myself would, could restore me to sanity. And we just wanna take a couple of minutes to review. First off, what is an agnostic? An agnostic is someone who lacks the knowledge whether there is a God or there's not a God. An atheist believes that there is no God and a believer believes that there is a God. An agnostic is someone who's just not sure. Ag means without, gnostic means knowledge. Agnostic, without knowledge. And we're told that we are agnostic in, some of us are agnostic, and some of us are agnostic in certain pockets of our life. We are sure some of us are that there is a God who rules over uh, the seas and the mountains and the forests and things like that. We, we have a certain awe of, of this God or this mother nature or whatever it is you want to call it. And then we translate that and say, uh-oh, but what about me and my eating? I've prayed to God many, many times before to make me thin, and he didn't. So obviously there is no God in this area. And what we're going to work on through action and action and action and action is the development of a relationship between yourself and that higher power. And like any relationship, it has to be worked at. Note the wording of the steps, came to believe that a power greater than yourself. So if we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, that means we're gonna have to look at it as a process rather than as an event. And too many people try to look at this as an event. They wake up one morning and they're struck with willingness and they're struck with this deep core belief in a power greater than themselves. And it usually doesn't work that way. What it works like for me and many other people, but I'm just going to speak from my experience, is something that requires a lot of work. How do I work at my relationship with God? Prayer, meditation, certainly, yes but I also have to work at my relationship with my higher power by helping others sometimes when I don't want to. I have to work at my relationship with God by being kind to people that maybe I don't want to be kind to. And I have to work at my relationship with God through this series of life events some of which make me smile, some of which make me frown, some of which may scare me, some of which may get me upset. I have to work at that by trusting, and that's a process and it requires action, by trusting 
that everything is going to be okay. And many, many times each day I say, how can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. So wherever we are in this process, and for some of us, it's a more uphill battle than with others. But wherever we are in the process, if we're confused about how to establish a relationship with a higher power, if we're confused about anything about that relationship, what I would suggest strongly is take action and take action that goes beyond just prayer and meditation. It's Saturday, I could sit in that synagogue and pray till the cow jumps over the blue moon tonight. Tomorrow would be church. I could go to a church and I could pray until the cow jumps over the moon. And I could walk out of that church or I could walk out of that synagogue or I could pray in my home or wherever or my car or whatever and nothing will have changed. I have to take action. We agnostics, notice that the chapter is not entitled those agnostics. Notice that the title of the chapter is not called the agnostics. It's entitled we agnostics because for most people, pockets, pockets, vestiges of agnosticism, agnosticism, sorry, uh, agnosticism will remain often, even when we have a belief that there is a God. But will that God be there for me when I want to eat? Will that God be there for me when I'm worried about the world events or I'm worried about disease or whatever that may be for you? Children or grandchildren or parents or what have you, jobs, finances. Will that God be there for you? And then sometimes we look and we say, oh my Lord, if there's really a God, what? how did this happen to me? Or how did that happen to me? Where was God when this was happening to me? And I can only tell you from my own experience that God was crying too. That God was not happy that something happened in your life that made you very, very sad and hurt you because God didn't put a bunch of robots on the earth. God put people on the earth. And as such, people have the choice to do good or they can do bad. They can follow their instincts or they can follow their God. And sometimes when our instincts are in collision with others, then we will want the same thing or we'll go for the same job, but God sees the bigger, bigger, bigger picture. And so if we're just patient enough, what will happen is over time, we will see that this is really okay. And we may be going through some tough times, a lot of people are, not just now, but always. There's always people that are going through tough times and we have to just be all the more vigilant and be all the more ready to work and to remember what we're taught in Bill's story that when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. And it says on page 45 in this chapter, We Agnostics, it says on page 45, the main purpose of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if that's gonna be the main object of the, of the book, 
then it dang well better be the main object of my life. So there's nothing that comes in front of the quest for a closer, better quality relationship between me and that power, which is greater than myself. And then it says, do you believe or are you willing to believe? Or, wait a minute, I think I have that backwards. It says, sorry, I think I have that backwards. Yeah, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? What am, I so am I so pompous? I'm on page 47 where it says that in the middle of the page, it says we needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? You don't have to believe, you just have to be willing to believe. Now, even if I'm an atheist, which I am not, even if I am a strong religious person, which I am not, no matter where I am on the spectrum, I have to look around at this world and I have to say to myself, there is a power greater than myself. Because for me to look at the mountains and the rivers and the puppies and the babies and the miracles and the people getting well and the people being healed from disease or whatever that may be, did I create love? Did I create friendship? Did I create that magical feeling that occurs between two people who love each other, whether it's a romantic love or whether it's the love of friends or the love of relatives or whatever. Did I create these things? I think not. So I am now willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. And what I know to be true, because I've just gone through the doctor's opinion in the first three chapters, what I know to be true is that I am biologically predetermined to eat myself to death because food became the solution to my problem. And what was my problem? My problem was the buildup of everyday human emotion. And that when I got scared or happy or jealous or sad or angry, or I got whatever I got in terms of emotions, those emotions built up within me and they knocked on the door of the brain and said, make us feel better. And the brain says, oh, there's something going on. Send in the Snickers bars. Because what did my brain know? If it said, send in the steamed cauliflower or send in the hard boiled eggs, it, I wouldn't get the effect from that. It said, send in the Snickers bars, send in the cupcakes, send down the pizza. Because those foods give me an effect. What is that effect? That effect is that instant sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly. I deliberately use that word twice because we need, want, desire, instant results. That's excuse me, that Snickers bar, excuse me for just one second here. That Snickers bar is going to produce an effect within my brain that is going to make me feel a lot better very instantly. 
It does something for me that nothing else except the steps do for me. Food doesn't do for the normal eater what it does for me. And so the excess food doesn't do to them what the food did to me. But remember, I am not a person that has the food problem. Food was my solution. I have a problem with the buildup of emotions and my brain will send me involuntarily into the arms of a donut. And when you tell people how much food I ate against my will, they cannot, if they're normal eaters, they cannot wrap their brain around it because they've never eaten food against their will. I didn't want to be doing what I was doing. I couldn't help it. Now let's examine the other part of the disease. Because you see, if an M&M was in my possession, like in my pocket here, maybe like Batman has his utility belt, I'd have a utility belt and I'd have M&Ms in there with the peanuts. I mean, obviously the people that buy these M&Ms without the peanuts, obviously these are not Jewish people. You, you, you have to have the ones with the peanuts. I mean, come on now, unless you're allergic to peanuts, don't even try to talk me into the other ones. Okay, enough with the nourishment. But the bottom line is, if I had a Batman utility belt here full of M&Ms and I got jealous or I got scared or I, whatever, I got angry, I would pop one of them in my mouth like a Xanax and I'd be fine. But you see that, Mental twist is only half the issue here. The other half is in the body, and that's the physical allergy. And that allergy makes it impossible for me to stop once I've started. And so if I cannot stop once I've eaten, and I cannot keep from eating because of the mental twist, and I can't stop because of the allergy, I am powerless over food and my life's unmanageable. Now, if I've come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, that's gonna be the necessary power because it's a power as defined by the big book as being greater than myself. So do you see how we transcend from one step to the next? This power is equal or greater to the sentence that says lack of power was my dilemma. Uh, when we go to Bill's story, it says there had been no more power in him, him being Ebby, than there was in me in that moment. And that was none at all. So we see that human beings by themselves cannot muster the necessary power to overcome my compulsive overeating illness. It cannot be done. It just cannot be done. But as I tap into the power greater than myself, now I can live without that desire to eat these foods that trigger the allergy because the emotions are not building up to that level. How do I reduce the toxicity of these emotions? Through the working of the steps. The working of the steps, particularly 10, 11, 12, the, and nine, and 
four and five and six and seven, the working of the steps will level out the emotions so that the desire to eat is simply not there. I did not, I did not overeat today, nor did I overeat yesterday, nor did I overeat the day before or the day before that or whatever. You get the picture. Was that because I'm such a successful dieter? No. It's because I'm tapped into a power greater than myself. How do I specifically tap into it? I work the steps. So we're looking at what we have to do and we're looking at how we have to do it. So I'm hoping that it's going to be thorough enough of an explanation so that we understand why we need to do what we need to do and how we do what we need to do, because this is vital to our survival. And many of us come in with very, very mm, hostile attitudes toward God. If there's a God, then how come my son is a bum? Or if there's a God, how I have a daughter hasn't spoken to me in 10 years, almost 11 years, hasn't spoken a word to me. I was not invited to her wedding. She does not communicate with me. I send her cards. I send her letters. I call. I leave messages. Sometimes I'll send a check for her birthday. She cashes the check. I hear nothing back from her. It's very, very hurtful. But what I know is that life is short and I want her to know that through it all, I love her so that when I do go, if we haven't mended fences and it, she does come to an epiphany that she, she should have been more humane here, I don't want her to ever doubt that I loved her. So I don't do it for me. I do it because it's the right thing to do, but I do leave her alone. I mean, I don't pester her. I, she's given me a very clear signal. She does not want me in her life and that's fine. But I will every once in a while send a letter or a card, not every day, not every month, not even every quarter, but I will send something maybe for a birthday or something. Other than that, I leave her alone. I leave her alone. Now, I have other things that go on in my life, as do you, as do you. So we say to ourselves, well, what the heck, God? Here I am, and I'm praying, and I'm working with these other people. There's nothing in this book that says, now you get everything you want. There's nothing in this book that says, now everything's going to go according to your script. What's in this book is the how and how to for when it doesn't go right or when it does. But a lot of people get frustrated because they feel like, okay, God, we're going to go tit for tat. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and you better do this, this, and this. doesn't work that way. God doesn't, doesn't do that. He doesn't make deals like that. And there are people that are starving in China. There's people starving in America. You know, we always have that adage or that, anal that um, uh, analogy, well, they're starving in China or they're starving in Africa. They're starving here too. I'm not glad about it. I'm not happy about it. I'm not proud of it or, or in any way celebratory of it. But there are people in the United States that they're starving to death. Go to Chicago, go to Lower Wacker Drive, take a ride down there. What you'll see is horrifying. I was born and raised in Chicago. I know Chicago well.
go down to Lower Wacker Drive. You're going to see some people that are circling the drain. Go to Madison Avenue. Go to Lower Wacker Drive. You're going to see some things that are horrifying. Where's God there? Well, maybe that's our signal that we need to help these people a little bit more. Maybe this is a cry from God to us that says, do something more than you've done for these people or for humanity. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. And sometimes what I've become, become comfortable with is sometimes the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is my lack of power is my dilemma. Lack of power is my dilemma. So we're on page 53. And we're at the three quarters of the way down the page. And on page 53, it says, arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason. Now, Notice that Bridge of Reason is in capital letters because in many, many souls and many, many hearts, the reason, the scientific explanation is that God. And he uses the Bridge of Reason in capital letters to give homage to that toward the desired shore of faith. The, the outlines and the promise of, an, of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Look at, look at all of us. We come in here and my memory goes back to a place in Chicago called Potawatomi Park. And Potawatomi is a park, just like what it says. If you don't, if you've never been there, you, okay, it's a park. And in the park is a field house. And in the field house, we used to meet. And in the field house of Potawatomi Park, you could walk in there and meetings were much, much bigger then than they are today. We used to get 75, 80, 100 people to a meeting. And the reason is, is that there were active treatment centers that would, there'd be little buses outside the meeting room. And there'd be two buses in front of the meeting. One was from one treatment center and one was from the other treatment center. And they were very competitive. And the people would have jobs, not everybody. There'd be greeters and huggers. There'd be a secretary for every meeting and a treasurer for every meeting and a chair for every meeting. And the chair would oversee things and the secretary would read like we read, you know, uh, how it works. Okay, chapter five, rarely have, that would be the job of the secretary. And the greeters and the, the hugging used to freak me out. So I would always get there five, 10 minutes early or late, excuse me, late. I was late for everything anyway in those days, but I would get there late because the hugging would freak me out. And then I would leave a little early because the hugging and the, and the hand holding and that would freak me out. But when you walked into that meeting, you knew you were welcomed. 
when you went into Swedish Covenant Hospital or some of the other places I went to meetings, you knew you were welcomed because we come in here and we have flagging spirits because OA is the last house on the block for most of us. It costs about $100,000 for your seat in OA. You have to go to join the gyms and you have to have the urine of pregnant women shot up your keister. And you usually have to go get acupuncture and you have to go buy clothes that you'll never wear. And you have to buy clothes five sizes too small. So you'll be sure that that motivates you to stay on your diet. So you'll get into those clothes, but you'll never wear them. You'll end up giving them away. And then of course, you've got to do the pay in way. And there probably isn't a person here of the hundred that are here that isn't a lifetime member of at least one of those groups. I guarantee you if I went to every one of your doors and I said, where's your card that says you're a lifetime member? Every one of you has got the card and the books. Oh, the books, the books you bought. Oh, and the treatment centers. Oh, and the doctors. Oh, and the whatever. It costs about $100,000 to get your seat in OA. And we are flagging spirits. And we are people who have been pummeled by life. This is a vicious illness. This is a vicious, vicious illness. And it's one of the illnesses not one of, it's the illness that you wear for all the world to see. You know, you could walk down the street as a compulsive gambler, and I'm not downplaying the severity of gambling, or you could walk down the street as an alcoholic, not in all cases, or a drug addict, not in all cases, but in many cases, you could walk down the street and no one might know that you are that addict, that you have that addiction, but not this. Some that are listening to me now, or some that are listening to me on the podcast, are going to be people that pass for normal. I have a friend of mine, you've heard me talk about this person before. I have one that lives in Colorado and one that lives in Northern California. And my friend in Northern California, I don't know if she's here today, I can't, I can't determine it or not, uh, or color, whatever. They appear to be very, very normal people. You would not look at them and say, oh my Lord, what the heck is, she, you know, what the heck is wrong with that woman? But when you, when you see them, you don't know it, but they are bottom of the barrel, garbage can, dumpster diving, back alley, compulsive overeaters, but they are bulimic to the point where they don't show the weight. They are restrictors. Many anorexics do show it. Some do not. But most of us who are on the side of the disease that I have, which is the compulsive overeating obesity, I could put on 40, 50 pounds by Thanksgiving. No problem. You turn me loose. I could put on 40, 50 pounds by Thanksgiving with, I wouldn't even break a sweat or more, I could put maybe more, but I could definitely put on 40, 50 pounds by Thanksgiving. Some of you can't, but that's not the point. The point is we come in here with flagging spirits and what do we find? 
we find for the probably the only time in our life, the first time in our life for me, that there are other people who think about food like I do and who react to food like I do and who have the same issues with food that I do. And it never occurred to me that that was even possible because my brain, my ego said to myself, you know what? I'm the only person like this and I'm not worth living. I'm not worth drawing air out of the environment. I should be killed or I should die. Because when I was six, seven years old, I became convinced that existentially, if you are a fat boy or a fat girl, you are wrong, you are evil, you suck, and, you're, and your mother wears army boots that there is nothing about me that is worth keeping because everyone in my environment told me incessantly, you are never gonna have a good life. You are never gonna have a girlfriend. You are never gonna get a good job. If you only loved your mother, you wouldn't eat so much. If you loved your father, you wouldn't eat so much. If you had any respect for yourself, you wouldn't eat so much. And I didn't know how to tell them this when I was six or seven or 20, that I'm doing the best I can and I'm failing and I'm fighting and I'm losing. And I came in here and I found a group of redwood trees. You know that the redwood tree is perhaps the, not perhaps, it is the largest living thing on earth is a redwood tree. They're huge. If you've ever been to Crescent City, California, and you've seen them, it's amazing. I've driven my car. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years, and we went down there when my daughter was quite young. And I drove my car through a tree. Isn't that an incredible thing to even say? I drove my car through a tree. We have, I don't know if they have them. They probably threw them out because I'm, I'm in the picture. But um, we have pictures of me driving the family through the tree that someone else was kind enough to take with my camera. We have the three of us in the front seat of the car waving and I'm driving my car through a tree. Largest living organism. You know that some of those trees predate colonization of America. They predate the colonization of America. But here's an interesting fact about the redwood tree. Did you know that their, their roots are very shallow and they need each other to hold themselves up? Just like us. They need each other because they, they entwine their roots around the roots of trees in their environment. And if one of those trees dies, it puts in peril the trees that are depending upon that tree for life. Just like us, we are intertwined in exactly that same way. That's why chapter two, it talks about the fellowship of OA. It talks about how democracy pervades from steerage to captain's table, because there's only one group of people that I can talk honestly to about this that understands, and that's you. 
You are the only group of people that both speak and understand the language of the heart. We are all intertwined with each other. We need each other in a way that no other fraternity, no other sorority, no other group needs each other, that we need each other for life itself in a unique way that no other group can match. That we are together as survivors of a shipwreck. And so we find that in OA, hopefully. I hope you find that in the meetings that you go to, because if you don't, please continue to dial in here and to zoom in here, excuse me, and to dial into vision for you, because you will find it there. Let's continue. We're on page 53. I know we're going slowly. We're going slowly because of the because it required here. To go fast here would be to miss the point. We're, at the, we're near the bottom of the page. Friendly hands, page 53. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome, not in judgment, not in accusatory judgment, but in welcome. We were grateful that reason capitalized because so many worship it had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Why couldn't we step ashore? Because we felt diffident, which is hesitant, because nothing else ever worked. The snake oil salesman that told you that if we prepare your meals for you, you won't gain weight. Ha! The snake oil salesman that sold you the books the snake oil salesman that sold you things that they knew damn well were not gonna work or not workable for people like us. On the 26th of December through the end of January, you are going to hear day and night, night and day, you are going to hear ads for the pay-in-ways and the gymnasiums and the pills and the potions and the exercise plans and the videos and the bicycles that you can order for your house, the stationary bikes and the treadmills, and you are gonna hear it day and night, night and day. Why? Because that's National Dieting Month is January. It's National Dieting Month. And you were skeptical that OA wasn't just another thing that was going to fail. And for some of you, the people around you in OA did fail. And it reinforced your doubt. But some of you kept coming and you're zooming in here with us this morning. Maybe you're convinced that this works, which is what I hope for. Or maybe you still doubt that this works. So I'm going to try to do the best I can to remind you that this does work. On page 88 is probably the most important sentence in the book. Page 88, it says, it works, it really does. I am a bottom of the barrel, gutter, back alley, garbage can, compulsive overeater, and I've lost over 500 pounds, and I have not found it necessary to compulsively overeat in over 21 and a half years. 
but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we had been leaning too heavily on reason that last mile and we did not like to lose our support. So even though reason didn't work, it was the best we had. It was all we had. Willpower didn't work. Reason didn't work. Utilizing what everybody was telling me didn't work. What did they tell me? Just push yourself away from the table. If you have any self-respect, you won't eat like a slob. If you have any self-respect at all and you expect to do good in this world, you gotta push yourself away from the table. Be a man. Don't eat fried chicken, eat boiled chicken. Don't eat French fries, eat asparagus. That's great advice. And that advice makes perfect sense. But I have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body that condemned me to search out certain foods in search of relief from the untenable, unbearable pain of not eating. And that when I'm not eating, I feel horrible. People would say to me, don't eat so much, you slob. You'll feel better. They were right. <clears throat> when I'm not eating and I'm not working steps, I feel anger better, I feel fear better, I feel jealousy better, I feel like killing myself better, I feel like killing you better, I feel lots of things better. They were right, but those feelings just drove me back into the food. I've said this before thousands of times, I ate railroad cars full of Doritos to kill the pain of eating railroad cars full of Doritos. The guilt and the shame of overeating propelled me into eating yet more food. Bottom of 53, that was natural, but let us think a little more closely. Without knowing it, had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith, let's stop right there. Why did you come to your second meeting of OA? And sometimes I know that there's a 10 and 15 year gap between the first meeting and the second meeting. I know that. I've, I've seen a lot of people that had that. They went to a meeting and then 15, 20 years later, you know, I gotta tell you a quick story here. You know what makes me sad? I'll tell you what makes me sad. I've been very, very lucky and that I've traveled this world doing big book studies, doing big book conventions, big book retreats. And I've been the speaker in 38 of the 50 states and, and Israel and Canada. I've been very, very lucky. But I'll tell you what I'm tired of hearing. Somebody will come up to me. Maybe it'll be in Los Angeles at the OA birthday, even though this year it's going to be on Zoom or they'll come up to me in Newark, New Jersey, where we're gonna have the vision convention, please God. I hope that that won't be on Zoom. I hope that'll be in person. I'll cry if that one's on Zoom. And they'll come up to me in the lobby of the hotel and they'll grab me and they'll say, are you Harlan G? And I'll say, yes. And they'll say, you came to Springfield, uh, Ohio, or you came to Boca Raton, Florida, or you, whatever, it doesn't matter where it is. And you were there 15 years ago and you saved my life. 
You, when you came in 15 years ago, man, you unpacked that big book for me in a way I had never heard it in my entire life. You changed my world. And then they'll say, and now I have seven days of abstinence. What? Wait a minute. Stop right there. You mean to tell me that 15 years ago, I changed your life and you've just got seven days. Now, I don't say that to him. I celebrate the seven days. God bless him. I, you know, that's great. That's fantastic. But do you hear what I'm, do you hear what I'm getting at here? 15 years ago, they heard the big book and it took them 15 years minus seven days to finally surrender to finally put the food down. I came in in 79. I got abstinent in 86, 85. I stayed abstinent for a number of years, stopped doing the work, relapsed, and got abstinent again on December 29th, 98. But even then I had to have, I had to have that sass pounded out of me. Bottom of 53, last two words, for did we, for did, yeah, for did we not believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? What was that but a sort of faith? Yes, we had been faithful, abjectly faithful to the God of reason. So in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. We found that too, that we had been worshipers. What a state of mental goose flesh that used to bring on. Had we not variously worshiped people, sentiment, things, money, and ourselves? Stop right there. There were people in my environment, and I bet you had them too. I thought, man, if I could just be like that guy, I'd have it made. That guy or that gal, man, they've got, they've got it all. They've got it made. They've got willpower, they've got money, they've got this, they've got that. I would look at some of these people and think, man, oh man, if I was just more like them, I'd have this great life. And the truth of the matter is, they're just as human as I am. They're just as human as me. Prick them, will they not bleed? Look in their life, will you not find human characteristics? I think you will. There are people on this line right now that have accomplished great things. Things that very few other people could have done, would have done. There are people on this line right now, including me, that are survivors of a disease that is murderous, the loneliness, the asexual existence, the isolation, the shame, the guilt, the fear, fear of people that we love, fear of people that we don't know, fear of the world that we were born into, that they would reject us as they often had. And it drove us into extreme isolation. And yet, we fight for our lives here in OA. Good. But we don't have to fight anymore. 
There is no fight anymore. It's just a working of the steps. It's just the working of the steps. Put your weapons down. It's over. Stop it. You don't have to worry about it. The steps are here and we can work them. And then with a better motive, had we not worshipfully beheld the sunset, the sea or a flower. I walk early in the morning. I listen to the first 30 minutes of the meeting. I happened to, I shared Thursday. I listened to the first 30 minutes of the meeting and I answer text messages and emails. And then at about 4.30 in the morning, I get up from where I'm sitting right now. I go to the little boy's room and I get out of the house and do a three mile walk that takes 90 minutes. And yesterday when I walked out of the house, that moon was so big and so bright you could practically read a book outside with no artificial light at all. That's how bright that moon was. My, and the same thing today. And I beheld that moon and I looked at that moon and this is with all my years of recovery. And I looked at it and I could see it for a while. And then when I turn, I can't, and then I, turn around again and there it is. And what do you think was going through my mind? God, I need some sales today. God, I need a wife. God, I need this. God, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Because I. the reason I'm telling you that story is because I'm human. No matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to be, need to be reminded that I'm here to serve God. I'm not here to give God a list of what I want. He's not my errand boy. He's not my genie. He's not my Santa Claus. He's not the tooth fairy. That's not the way it works. But I had to laugh at myself. Who of us had not loved something or somebody? How much did these feelings, these loves, these worships have to do with pure reason? Little or nothing we saw at last. Were not these things the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings, after all, determine the course of our existence? Many of us love, and then it changes the course of our existence. It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith or love or worship. In one form or another, we had been living by faith and little else. Most of you would be convinced that if I gave you a billion dollars, you'd say, wow, that would really help me out. We believe in that because we, it it's, falls in, into our reason that that would make things a lot easier. Now we have to believe in something different. We have to have that same quickness to faith in something that we cannot see or spend. And that we cannot go out and buy the kind of car that's going to make our friends go, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. We cannot have the house that's going to make them go, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. It doesn't work that way. But they will ooh and ah when they see the transformation that God weaves into the soul, into the fiber of your soul. They will ooh and ah when they see your recovery. 
they will ooh and ah when they see that you are transformed, that you are not quick to argue, that you are not quick to correct, that you are not quick to criticize, that you are not quick to recoil, that you are not quick to be on the defensive or the offensive, that you can take life as it comes and move through the days with little or no conflict, and you will move through them free of the desire to compulsively overeat. That that desire to compulsively overeat will simply not be there. Then they will ooh and ah in a way that material possessions will never ever match. Let's continue. In one form or another, we had been living by faith and little else. How true. Imagine life without faith were nothing left but pure reason. It wouldn't be life. But we believed in life. Of course we did. We could not prove life in the sense you can prove a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Yet there it was. The shortest distance between me and unhappiness is through the shortcut of comparison. And when I start comparing myself to other people, I never do it when I'm in a good place. Isn't that funny? I never do it when I'm in a good place. I only do it when I'm in a bad place. And I start to compare myself to others and I always come up short. And the next thing I end up doing is I end up ordering extra cheese on my pizza. The shortest distance between me and unhappiness is through comparison. Could we still say the whole thing was nothing but a mass of electrons created out of nothing, meaning nothing, whirling onto a destiny of nothingness? Of course we couldn't. The electrons themselves seemed more intelligent than that, at least so the chemists said. These electrons that make up everything in the world have all kinds of things going on there that no human being could have designed. Let's take gravity for just a minute. Something we don't really think about very often. Did you wake up today thinking about gravity? I hope not. But let's take a look at gravity for just a second here. Do you know that if gravity was just a little bit stronger, the earth would not exist because the stars and the heavenly bodies would move in at an amazing speed and destroy it sucked in by the magnetism of the gravity. And if gravity was just a little less strong, the moon and the stars and the heavenly bodies would drift off into space and the earth wouldn't exist as it does today. It's perfect. It's perfect. Look around you. Look at the tapestry that is the world we live in today. And although it has its faults and although it has its failings, and although we wish the people on Lower Wacker Drive or West Madison Street had homes, it is pretty damn good the way it is. Yes, there's diseases. 
And yes, there are injustices. And yes, man's inhumanity to man is often horrible and the makings of headlines and movies and TV shows. There's much pain in the world. No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. But there is a God that cried with you. There is a God that sat and cried right with you. And by and by, things got better, I hope, or things will. And the world as we know it is a world that is built on other findings, other beliefs, other inventions. Yesterday, I went and I bought a brand new computer. And I, I needed a computer. I had the old one I had for six and a half years. Man, that thing, I should have traded that in a, a year ago. But I didn't. Not because I'm cheap, because I'm too lazy to go down there. But yesterday, I said, I'm uh, the day before, I made an appointment. And I went down there at uh, whatever it was, what was it, 1030 or 1130, whatever the heck it was. And I bought a brand new computer. And I plugged that thing in and I played with it. And I was on websites and I down, made sure I downloaded Zoom, got to have Zoom. And I made sure I did this and I did that. Oh, I was having a great old time. And I was thinking to myself, what a miraculous invention. What an unbelievable thing right here in my house, right here in my house. I have the world at my fingertips. There's people right now that I'm communicating with and that you are a part of that are in New Jersey and Palm Springs, California and Dublin, Ireland and Sweden and Scotland and England and Boston, and God knows where Dublin, Georgia, and Connecticut, and Geneva, Illinois. What an amazing thing. Who could have thought of this 200 years ago? Where would set, you'd be set on fire if you thought this, like 200 years ago, if you would have said, one day this'll happen, they'd have put you in a crazy house. But yet here it is. What an unbelievable thing. Now let's bring it back to recovery. We who walk in here, whether it's on a Zoom meeting or in person or on the phone, we walk in on the shoulders of giants. And some of those giants were cautionary tales of what not to do. And some of those giants live their life in recovery and passed on their knowledge so that from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other, it got to you. Now don't get me started on sponsorship because then we'll be here a long time. And there will become a time when I will get started on that, but not today. We build on these people who God provided for us. Dr. William Duncan Silkworth was a neurologist, unconcerned with alcoholism, unconcerned with alcoholic people or tendencies or any of that. And on October the 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday, when the stock market crashed 
and the Great Depression started. He was overinvested and he was ruined. And he went to his friend Charles Towns, who owned and operated the Towns Hospital in New York City, which was the leading hospital for the treatment of drug addiction and alcoholism in the world. And he went to work as its medical director in November of 1934. Excuse me, 1929, 1929. $35 a week was his salary. And he observed between 1929 and 1934, hundreds, thousands of drinkers coming through that hospital. And some of them would go into that hospital and they would leave and they would never return. And some of those people, mostly men, not all, but mostly male, would come out and go in and come out and go in. And it was like a revolving door. They would come in and go out and come in and go out, sometimes in a year and sometimes in a week and sometimes in two days or a day. And he started to observe something. And what did he observe? he observed that in about 10% of these dudes, there was something different in the way they thought about liquor and something different in the way they reacted to it once they drank it. And he started to formulate his opinion with no scientific backing. It was an opinion based on observation. And what was his opinion? His opinion was that the disease is twofold. It is a mental component and a physical component. He writes any description of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor that he called the allergy is incomplete. That's the first time in the world anybody ever put a physical component to this disease. Now, Ebby Thatcher was far from a holy man. Ebby Edwin Thatcher was not exactly a, a, a religious man or a man that walked around with a halo on his head, but he was a drunk and he got sober and he stayed sober for two months in the Oxford group in New York City. And he came to Bill Wilson on, in, on a late November night in 1934 at 182 Clinton Street. And Bill knew the problem, but he didn't know the solution. Ebby knew there was a solution, but he didn't know the problem. And in that one night, one drunk, one sober, in that one night, the world changed and it will never go back, hopefully, to before this. The problem and the solution came together. But it wouldn't have done any good if it was just Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson brought it to Dr. Bob. And they brought it to Bill Dotson. And they brought it to Fitz Mayo, who we're going to be talking about next week. And they brought it to Archie Throwbridge, and they brought it to on down the line, Jimmy Burwell, and on down the line, and Hank Parkhurst. 
and eventually it got to you. Could you have orchestrated that? Could you have made all those pieces come together? Most of you weren't even born yet. We're talking about events almost a hundred years ago. How many of you show of hands are over a hundred years old? Nobody, okay. So you couldn't have orchestrated that. And yet it is the symphony that is a testimony to the presence of God, no less than Lake Michigan or the mountains or a baby or the stars in the sky that for the first time in the world, alcoholics, drug addicts, gamblers, compulsive overeaters, bulimics, anorexics, alanons, codependents, internet addicts, sex addicts, love addicts, debtors, under earners, coffee drinkers, cigarette smokers, and you name it, have a place to go on which they can absolutely rely that it will work and the world has been changed forever. You may be struggling. You may be on what my friend in Colorado calls the struggle bus. You may be on it. And if you are, we are here to help you. But you may be in recovery, but here's something we can all agree on. There are people that you are hearing that are in recovery and you can tell damn well that when you hear that recovery, that it works. This works. And it works beautifully. And it works where nothing else will. Look at the series of events. You shouldn't need more authentication that there is a God. You shouldn't need more verification that there is a God. And Ebby and Bill and Bob and Lois and Bill Dotson and Hank Parkhurst, they're all dead. They're all dead. God is counting on you. He's counting on you. Don't let him down. Don't let him down. We're going to continue next week with our discussion of chapter four. And we're going to start that from the bottom of page 54. Hence, we saw that reason isn't everything. Now, I just, before I turn this back to Marie.